Welcome to the ATF Podcast. In this episode, we speak with Michael Herklotz, the owner and founder of Ferio Tego Cigars. Michael has a fascinating background ranging from a music degree from the Berklee College of Music in Boston to operating two Davidoff stores in New York City to then being the vice president of Nat Sherman International and then now his newest venture, Ferio Tego Cigars. I have been a huge fan of everything Michael has done in the cigar industry, but I believe that Ferio Tego is his best work yet. I think you'll find his story both fascinating and inspiring, so enjoy the episode. You previously were with Nat Sherman for a long time, so I want to take it back. Go back before you even got into cigars. What what led you into that world? What led you into wanting to work in cigars? Um, my background was music. I went to uh, I was a musician pursuing drumming all through middle school and high school. I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston um, to pursue music as a career, and. Uh, um, while I was in school, enjoyed my first cigar for the first time, and I loved it. And, uh, you know, as an artist, you, you, you kind of get um, uh, crazy about things that you find interesting and you want to learn more and more and more. But as a musician, I certainly couldn't afford to learn much more and more and more uh, when it comes to premium cigars. So I got a job um, at a little kiosk in the Prudential Center Mall that sold cigars. And at that time, it was 1999. There was still quite a few opportunities to be able to enjoy cigars um, out in the open, in bars, and in other opportunities. Um, And there were lots of retail stores. So I had a lot of um, uh, early opportunities to um, discover cigars obviously while I was selling them, but also by going to other stores and experiencing them. And I really, really enjoyed it. So I moved to New York in 2002 uh, to pursue a career as a musician. But I got a job at the Davidoff store on Madison Avenue uh, in sales as a sales associate. And I knew the general manager of that store at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that made it, um, obviously, it was, it was very uh, fortuitous. And I was very fortunate to be able to get that opportunity as a 22-year-old kid who had just moved to the city. So I spent um, 2002 to 2006 um, working retail sales at the Davidoff store on Madison Avenue. And then in 2006, um, Davidoff bought a second store on the other side of town in an area called Columbus Circle. So they moved me there as the general manager in 2006. In 2008, I took back over Madison Avenue as well and ran um, both Davidoff stores in New York up until 2011 when I left Davidoff to join Nat Sherman, which at the time um, was kind of a a crazy move. Um, But it really we had a we had a very long term vision of how we were going to kind of uh, redevelop and relaunch. Nat Sherman in the premium cigar space. Sure. And uh, the Sherman family was was down. I had a, a general plan. And then we set off to do it, which, you know, if you look back at it through the lens of 2020, when we ultimately closed, um, what was the final chapter of Nat Sherman International Cigar Business was a, was a pretty riveting and cool chapter 
We yeah. did a lot of cool stuff. We made a lot of exciting products. We built our business beyond what it had ever been for the premium cigar side of the business. Uh, but in 2017, Matt Sherman was purchased by Altria. And um, so we stayed on for, I guess, two years or so until Altria decided that premium cigars specifically was not core to their business long term. Um, they gave us an opportunity to try and sell the business, which was awesome. Uh, except then COVID hit and that made selling a business virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. And that forced us to finally stop the process after months of, of retrying and retrying and retrying and finally just closing the business. But that led itself to what is now the newest chapter in my story, which is uh, together with the former CFO of Matt Sherman, we um, purchased the brands and the intellectual property and really everything that belonged to Nat Sherman International with the exception of the words Nat Sherman. But everything else, all the brands that we had um, worked to either continue or to develop from scratch, now we own as Ferriotego. And we're not only continuing the work that we did for the last 10 years or so, uh, but now we're also from scratch building a new brand, new company, new legacy under Ferriotego. Was your background as like as you got into working for Davidoff and then Nat Sherman, was that driven from any education in business or was that just you had passion for the industry and wanted to get involved in that way? Because I've heard you talk in the past um, really heavily on customer experience. And that, I mean, that's, that's the thing. So like with, between Davidoff and Nat Sherman at the townhouse shop. Yeah. That just I, seems I to never be the had, pinnacle of service. I never had real, real formal training. Um, I was fortunate enough. I mean, if you go back my first job when I was in high school, I worked in a pharmacy for okay. a year and that was customer facing. And then my next job was in a donut shop. And that was customer facing. And you had to make sure that the coffee was still hot when the customer got it. And yep. you had to make sure that the order was right. So I've always had um, jobs that were directly related to service and customer experience. And frankly, even as a musician, it is 100% based on your customer experience um, and, and consistency and making sure that, that the, um, the show is engaging. And Absolutely. the reality is that's what customer service is. That's what retail is. It's a show. And if you don't put on a show that's memorable, that somebody wants to see again, it's very difficult to grow a business that way. And so that was just, um, you know, I learned it, I think, through practice and, and having great mentors and managers and other folks. Um, I also learned it because as a sales associate, you have to survive. So. I had to do something on a on a very personal performance level that made me stand out in a different way than than my peers did. Right. And so that was really applying everything I knew about music and performing arts and applying it to sales in a way that was uh, a meaningful to the customer uh, and b successful for me and the businesses I worked for. That's awesome. Yeah. The Shops like that stand out. And I think I think it was Howard Schultz from Starbucks was talking about customer service. And he said, 
what allows shops, restaurants, stores, whatever, any customer experience to stand out from others is the salesperson, business owner, whoever it is, anyone that walks in the door, your only job is to assume positive intent from any negative <laughs> vibe you might get from a customer. And you listen, somebody walks in your door and they are opting in to engage with you. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you can do whatever you want to try and advertise or market or promote, whether it's Starbucks or whether it's a concert or wh whatever it is, you can do everything you can to throw it out there and hope that one of these little pieces of bait ends up hooking a fish and brings it in. But once you bring it in, if you don't over deliver the experience that you have uh, let them believe they are going to experience, mm -hmm. you don't just have another customer walk in your door because you've just duped that person. You know, that's, that's yeah. especially now when there is little nothing that we can't buy sitting on our toilet. Yeah. Then if, if you have a brick and mortar establishment, or something physical that somebody has to experience it um, uh, in person, you must over deliver that experience. Yeah. So with that in mind, how did that affect how you operated at Davidoff and Nat Sherman? Was that something that was just ingrained in you or was ingrained in the brands and that they brought you into that? That's an interesting point. I think, um, when I first started with Davidoff, there was still a lot of focus on Zeno Davidoff, the person sure. who really was, um, you know, the, in, in my opinion, the, um, the godfather of luxury retail, particularly in the, in the premium cigar space. And so there was always a piece of me. We were never trained to do things the way Zeno did them. Um, but simply by knowing the story and knowing the reverence that Zeno had for the retail experience, um, regardless of, of price or budget, that everyone mm -hmm. is deserving of that experience, um, that's just something I really took to heart. And it's something I've carried with me forever. I carried it with me to Nat Sherman, applied it in a more authentic way that makes sense to Nat Sherman. Obviously, Nat Sherman sure. is not the same as Davidoff, but... Um, there were things that you could extract from that mindset, um, that were very applicable to Nat Sherman. And even now, although we don't have a retail store under Ferry Otego, we're still talking about a, a, a consumer good that, that people opt into purchasing, mm -hmm. that retailers opt into supporting, and we have to over deliver on this experience. Yeah, it's, I think I've had all of them that have come out. The timeless, like I didn't smoke that much timeless before. Before you had it, I had I had a little bit over the years that I'd find, but the Pan American, Pan American, is that the line? Pan Americana. That's Pan -Americana. it. I keep going back to that one. It's it's a very special blend. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll we'll get back to Friotego. Nat Sherman. When you were when you were at Nat Sherman, well, let me rephrase that. When you were about to get involved with Nat Sherman, did they have an expectation that you would take that to the next level? Because that's a super old brand. And was it 
what was the status of it when you showed up when you left um when they hired me because it was a um it had just turned 80 years old it okay. was um predominantly recognized as a luxury cigarette uh, despite the fact that it had started as a premium cigar, started as a retail business, then became a premium cigar brand, then became a cigarette in the 1950s. So it enjoyed sure. almost 20 years of just being retail and premium cigar. The success of their cigarette business, uh, I think, so extraordinary that to focus on um, the business. And as a result, um, the premium cigar side of their business suffered to a degree. Um, and that's something that they were very open with when they started recruiting me and considering me to work for them. Um, initially, they were just looking for someone to run the store. And I said that was not really something I was interested in. Since I was running two Davidoff stores at the time, right. it really didn't make a lot of sense in my story to leave two Davidoff stores to run one that German store. But as we really started going down the rabbit hole of what could I really bring to the table, um, it wasn't just about trying to fix a store. It was really about um, rebuilding a brand and rebuilding perception to that brand. And uh, when you do that successfully and you add relevance, not just to the brand, but to the products on which the brand lives, mm -hmm. uh, then that retail experience, particularly a flagship retail experience, can then evolve along with it because you're, you're, you're changing the brand equity literally every day as more and more people look for, you know, a, a timeless collection or a metropolitan selection. Each time somebody bought in to trying that Sherman for the first time, it went from being an old 80 year old brand to a very new and relevant 82 year old brand and 83 year old brand. And so we just did that over and over and over again, um, right to the end. That store, the townhouse, does that go back to the beginning of the brand at Nat Sherman? Or was that something that you guys acquired as after you the came original, on board? The original store was 1400 Broadway. And it was there from 1930, from its inception, until 1976. Then okay. it moved to uh, 55th and 5th, which was a ridiculous idea to put a tobacco shop on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. I mean, you could buy tobacco literally on every corner in 1976. Right. So the fact that he put this colossal luxury emporium for tobacco products on Fifth Avenue was completely um, crazy, but did exactly what I think he intended to do, which was really elevate Nat Sherman to Fifth Avenue level. Uh, so it was there in 1976 to 1990. Then it moved to the corner of 42nd and 5th right across from the New York Public Library from 1990 until 2007. And then it opened up in its last location, which was mid-block. Um, but it was never called the townhouse until I joined. Okay. And that was very deliberate. Um, you know, there were lots of people who had heard of Nat Sherman. There were still not a lot of people who had experienced Nat Sherman, particularly in New York. And so I thought by... Um, Lots of lots of big brands have stores mm -hmm. and you typically refer to them as the store by using 
a different term that was more reflective of the actual experience. Um, it evoked um, an understanding of what that experience might be, even without having actually visited. You knew mm -hmm. that by hearing the Nat Sherman townhouse in New York, you knew that it must be significantly different than any other store you've been in. Right. And then COVID hit. So you, <laughs> you were operating that, you, for lack of better words, closed that down so gracefully and float into yeah. what you're doing now. So talk, talk through that process. Well, closing, closing was not plan A. Selling was plan At, A. Oh, right. And, um, and so we were very, very far along to successfully sell the business. And, um, and COVID hit literally um, the week, well, I shouldn't say hit, you know, it was trickling along, yeah. but we were in a meeting with the buyers at Altria headquarters, you know, ready to go. Just a mm -hmm. little more work to do, but it was a done deal. And uh, we all agreed we'd regroup in, you know, 10 days or something. And at the time we were joking about this, you know, like weird flu in Seattle that was, you know, kind of right. strange. Like everyone's overreacting uh, until, you know, like 10 days later, there's a freezer truck full of bodies at the bottom of my hill at the hospital. And yeah. we got on a conference call, you know, everyone isolated in our respective places. And the buyers rightfully said, you know, this is not the time for us to buy uh, a premium cigar business. So we went back to the drawing board. And um, with Brendan, the CFO, we just kept kind of repackaging, reaching out to new suitors, other people that we thought it could be a good fit for. Mm -hmm. um, and we made a lot of progress. But the more progress we made, particularly here in New York, things were not getting back to normal the way they were in other places. And we just weren't reopening. And, you know, again, I can't imagine a buyer in their right mind who would say, oh, cool, I'll take on this liability that's completely right. closed right now and hope that it turns around. Um, so ultimately, we knew we had to be done by the end of the year. And so we pushed it into July and then just finally said, OK, you know, we just can't keep going. Um, and so we announced that we didn't successfully sell, that we would have to start dismantling and close. And then we we basically reopened the townhouse in order to uh, gracefully liquidate it. I saw some of the pictures of lines out the door. It was awesome. I mean, I have yeah. to tell you, I've said this on other interviews in the past, you know, it was not fun to close the business, mm -hmm. but at a time when everything was just so messed up, um, nobody was in the city, uh, but we would all come together to work every day at a time when people were not able to come together to work except essential workers. Yeah. So, so the fact that we could actually come to work and be together during this period was actually quite cathartic. And then the, the people who were able to come into the store and experience it one more time and take advantage of our sort of estate sale, for lack of a better word, were all of the essential workers that were working in the city throughout the craziness of the height of COVID. Yeah. So cops and firemen and sanitation workers and EMS and doctors and nurses. And it was really like, um, you know, everyone else had kind of split or they were living back in the in the suburbs and they and they weren't coming into the city. And so while it was unfortunate that a lot of people didn't get to say goodbye, um, 
so many like really deserving people got to get in line at the store and take mm-hmm. another walk through and scoop up some incredible deals. Um, you know, it was a really nice way to go out. Right. And we did the same on our wholesale business. I mean, we, we called all our retail stores, particularly brick and mortar stores. And mm-hmm. we tried to really focus on single store operators who were either closed or just opening um, and say, look, you know, you guys have been stuck. You've been, you know, trying to pull off curbside. You don't have a website. You haven't been able to compete. We're not going to stay in business. So we're going to give you guys the first right to buy the products that you've always loved. We're going to give you a great price on them and you can make more money on it and get back on your feet. And, and, you know, hopefully that helps you get through pandemic. And it did for a lot of retailers. It really did. What were those discussions like when you, you and your business partner were, I guess before Ariotego, were having the idea of should we buy Nat Sherman? Should we buy these brands and start our own? Because yeah, I'd imagine really, that was happening before. It, it wasn't shutdown. happening. It wasn't happening in the way you would think, um, because the brands were never contemplated to be sold on their own. Mm-hmm. And to, and to be clear, we don't own Nat Sherman. Nat Sherman is still a cigarette brand owned and sold by Altria. So we own the brands of Nat Sherman International. But those brands were never intended to be sold standalone. They were only going to be included in the larger deal. Um, So when we failed at the larger deal, we reported in a release that the brands were not sold, that everything is just closing and being put away. Um, However, later... After that announcement, I guess in the late summer, there had been so much interest um, from lots of third parties in the brands that um, the company was kind of forced in a way to have to um, consider the offers on the table. Um, And once we got wind of that, that's really where our wheels started to turn um, because If there was any kind of underlying um, piece that I had with this process, it it was that at least, um, number one, there was nothing wrong with the work that we did, Mm -hmm. that everything we did was was right and it worked and the and the business was growing even up until we closed. And that knowing that when we closed, that would be the end of the story, so we would be able to put the period at the last sentence of the last page and close the book. Right. And that felt pretty good to me that, that it, nothing was going to happen to this later on. Um, so then once it was clear that, that maybe they could go on and that we were considering offers for these brands that really threw um, me into defense mode. Um, and I called Brendan because um, we had shared our own kind of ideas at the time. And Ferry Otego was one of my original ideas, just as a small brand. Um, I called Brendan and said, it looks like they will consider selling the brands. I think we should make a play for it. What do you think? We do Ferry Otego together and we do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of time, um, but we reached out 
to um, to the folks in charge of the deal. And we said, you know, we'd really like to be considered. And, you know, the, the ramification of that was obviously then we got we got left out of the process, whereas before we were part of the process. Now we were mm-hmm. left out. Um, but fortunately, uh, maybe 10 days, two weeks after we put in the offer, um, they called us and said, uh, everyone agrees you guys are the best um, the best team to continue the work and to continue the legacy. So congratulations, let's go to close. And then we had to form a company mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, tell our wives and uh, off we went. That's awesome. Well, yeah. you, so the, the brand Ferriotega, let me, let me pull this up. So if people haven't seen this logo, talk through the branding, where it came from, what inspired it? So Ferriotego is the motto on the Herklotz family coat of arms, which sounds very, um, I don't know, douchey, the whole coat of arms thing, but um, we have one. Actually, if, anyone, if you have a good one, use it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I've always loved our coat of arms and the story. Mm-hmm. I've always loved Ferriotego and the way it sounds. So I protected it years ago in our class. Uh, from a trademark perspective, just because I figured, you know, who knows what the future would hold. And, um, uh, but the image specifically is located in the coat of arms. If you zoom in to the shield of our coat of arms, and you can see it on the Ferriotego website, uh, if you zoom into the shield, it's this image of Hercules striking the Hydra. Um, And Ferriotego in the context of this image is strike and defend. Uh, which, you know, I think is kind of interesting mm-hmm. in in the context of what we've ultimately done with Ferriotego, striking at the opportunity to to get these brands and being able to defend them and grow them moving forward um, is, is a, a very interesting parallel to the story um, that's told in our family coat of arms. So uh, it really resonated with us and we're excited to use it every day. So you bought brands from Nat Sherman, Timeless, Metropolitan. Is there any others? Uh, well, there are some of the sub-brands that we also, anything that was that was owned as intellectual property under Nat Sherman International, we purchased. So if you think of, you've got Timeless Prestige, Timeless Supreme, Timeless Sterling, Timeless Panamericana, uh, Metropolitan Connecticut, Metropolitan Maduro, Metropolitan Host, Metropolitan Host Maduro, Metropolitan Habano, We also bought um, the Apoca and Apoca Reserva brands and Cora, which was our accessories brand, Mm -hmm. um, all of the domains um, and all of the trade dress and right to re-commercialize exactly the way we had done it in the first place, just without Nat Sherman International included. So it was a lot of um, dotting I's and crossing T's to make sure that that everyone was clear of what our intention was, um, that we were not interested in in using Nat Sherman at all. Nat Sherman will forever and only be used from a historical storytelling, not unlike yep. we're doing right now, but moving forward, these brands will fully live under Ferriotego moving forward. Were you a part of the blending process of some of these? All of them. With okay. the exception of, um, the, from, a, from a creative standpoint, the Metropolitan Connecticut, the Metropolitan Maduro, and the Metropolitan Host are the three blends that predate 
my arrival to Nat Sherman. When I joined Nat Sherman, um, there were two things immediately to do. One was to start creating new blends. So that was ultimately Timeless Prestige, Timeless Supreme. Um, and at the same time, also re-engage the factories making Metropolitan and make sure that those blends were truly what they should be. Mm-hmm. So making a blend is not easy, but maintaining a blend year after year is actually much more difficult in order to keep it the same. And so I wanted to make sure that we went back to those blends and took the opportunity to kind of reset them so that they truly tasted the closest to their original experience in the mid nineties. And so we successfully did that. And so since 2011, my work was to create new blends and new experiences and equally, if not more important, maintain the blends and experiences that were now already established, whether they were timeless from 2011, 12 or metropolitan from 1994, 1995 in, in, the most traditional of premium cigar disciplines, mm-hmm. maintaining and preserving experience year after year is the core philosophy of the premium cigar industry. Right. It's only in the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years maybe, where this idea of what's new, what's new, what's new is relevant. But at the end of the day, when you're done with what's new, you need core. And that's what yeah. really makes a blend that is certainly makes a brand. That's what made Nat Sherman, Nat Sherman so successful. Um, and so Ferio Tego takes a very similar approach. Of course, we like to innovate and create new products, um, and bring new offerings to market, but we are squarely focused on making sure that our core is core mm-hmm. and it is as good as the last one and as good as the next one. Yeah. The consistency and, and even just the flavor profiles that are found in the the core line and then the new the new lines that you've created i'd be comfortable handing any of those to a new cigar smoker and that's like like that's something i want to see with this with this podcast with this magazine is that we have there's such a diverse group in the cigar industry firearms alcohol um from like the super blue collar guys that will smoke a cigar by a campfire mowing the lawn whatever it is to going to high end shops and then buying the $500 Davidoff in its own wood box. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's something to be said for hobbies like these where if you extract yourself out of brand for a moment and you mm-hmm. just look at the sort of fundamental thing of what makes this so special, it's kind of split. Number one, in and of itself, it is just such a simple thing. It's just a bunch of leaves rolled together. Yeah. And all premium cigars particularly those that are handmade, are exactly the same. So in a way, it doesn't matter what the brand is because this is so misunderstood by the majority of people that if you are among the the very small minority that appreciates such a misunderstood little rolled up tube of leaves, mm-hmm. you are immediately um, uh, brought together in this level of camaraderie that I think supersedes just about any hobby there is. When you look at the other vices that you mentioned and hobbies that you mentioned, even they are probably uh, uh, more common and more welcomed by more people 
than premium cigars are. Yeah. Um, but when you start drilling into brands, um, there tends to be this, once again, sort of classification. So yeah. whether it's, you know, uh, uh, high-end rifles, you know, you can, you can be at crazy, crazy five and, and six figure numbers to purchase a rifle versus your grandfather's mm -hmm. that he left you. Um, but the love to shoot is the same, right? Then you can yep. just really go down the rabbit hole of connoisseurship and, and collecting. But, but the, the fundamental love and passion for these things is just so simple that it really does um, transcend brand. Where I think Ferry Otego really stands um, in a place uh, of its own is the ability for um, this brand to be as wide as it is today and will be. That you can come into Ferry Otego with Metropolitan at $7 a piece. Um, you can also buy the newest offering at, 2020, at $21 to $22. And $22 is not an inexpensive cigar. Frankly, $7 is not an inexpensive right. cigar when you're spending, if you're enjoying one per day. Um, but where we have really, um, I think, been inspired by uh, Nat Sherman and now really carved on our own is over-delivering on value. And it goes back to how we opened this conversation. If you're going to come and see my show, it is going to be the best show you've ever seen. And you're going to want to come and see it again. And you're going to bring a friend with you. And mm -hmm. that might be a friend that's never seen the show, or that might be a friend that's seen it before and wants to see it again. And as long as we over deliver every single time, we're in great shape. And Ferry Otego has done that now since October in market. And we will certainly do that for many more years to come. What do you think sets apart your brand? And not, not to put down other brands, but I think, I don't know what it is. Is it, is it the presentation or is it just the story? Like, like to me, when I think of your brand, when the Elegancia came out, um, I showed up at the shop. I was like, like, okay, another Connecticut, another Freo take or, uh, her clots, Connecticut. So I was like, it's going to be smooth. It's going to be simple. It's going to be approachable, but then elegant is like, that was the word that I pinpointed. I was like, this is perfect. I sat down I think I was just working, lit it up and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, man. And there, there's came, something different and it's a, approachable, but it's full body. And it, came in a, and it came in a perfectly functioning, incredible travel humidor. I mean, right. everything about it over delivers. Yeah. That I think that in and of itself, you know, someone said, uh, criticizing it as my first release saying that, you know, I had no right to launch the brand at $21. And it was before it had even, there was even a picture of it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, how, how could you possibly know that until it's out, you know, well, if you buy it and you launching it, a brand after having launched several. Sure. But I mean, in the industry, it's, you are, you are prejudging an experience. Yeah. And I think if we've learned anything in the last 10 years, it's allow things to fall out and then you can judge. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I think what has been proven true now since October is uh, there was a there was a pretty strong fan base that loves Elegancia and loves Generoso and mm-hmm. recognizes just how much value and experience those two uh, blends offer. Um, so what makes them stand out? I think number one, over delivering on value. Um, and then you obviously the, the merit and quality of the product and experience itself, the flavor, the combustion, the, the complexity, right? Regardless of price, um, is it doing the fundamental things that it's supposed to do? Does it, can you draw on it? Does it burn evenly? You know, all of those things, whether it's $2 or $200, if it doesn't do that, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's garbage. So we've been able to achieve that. Um, and then, you know, then it comes down to what is the point of differentiation that that makes the brand resonate with you as a consumer? I mean, I'll tell you what makes it resonate with me. I own it and, it, and yeah. I feel it and I live it. Um, but what makes you want to take a picture of it and post it? You know, we all know yeah. that there are, we consume lots of things every single day. We eat lots of different things. We drink lots of different things. We smoke lots of different things. We wear lots of different things. But we don't post every one of those things. We are conditioned to be very deliberate about what we brag about. And we generally brag about things that, A, we think we have permission to, to brag about, and B, um, that will be shared um, from an opinion standpoint, and others will jump in and pat us on the back and say, oh, man, that's great. That is what we do as consumers now every day. There's lots of stuff that we consume that we don't brag about. Mm-hmm. And what we are working really hard on um, is making everybody love this brand and love the story and love the people, love our process, um, and feel empowered to brag about it and feel like it's as much their brand as it is our brand. And hopefully they do. What's your blending process? Has, has that changed since you started for Otego? No. Um, Talk through that. That's, that's it, been fascinating to me, how different people approach that. There's a few different. One is if you are specifically trying to develop something now and you have an idea of what you want it to be, there's one approach to that. The other approach is if you're just blending for inventory, blending to have a a book of recipes that you might use one day in the future, Mm -hmm. that's different. Um, When we were creating Elegancia and Generoso, it was at a time when we had already had um, established brands and blends in market. And we're really just in a period of exploration with lots of blends and versions of blends and tweaks of blends for someday in the future. Uh, and that was work I had done probably 2017, 2018 with Placencia in Nicaragua and Quesada in Dominican Republic. So when we were able to do Ferio, and actually I started the work on Elegancia and Generoso before um, we purchased the brands because I knew mm-hmm. Ferio was going to be something I was going to do. So in that case, we just picked up where we left off, went back to brand to blend ideas and said, okay, let's remake this, remake this. I have an idea. 
two blends, six by 50, humidors of 10, one creamy and buttery, one full and rich. Let's go. And so that was taking sort of picking up where we left off in the blending process. Um, But in other blends, like for um, uh, for the TAA 2020, that was a specific project that I wanted a specific outcome. And so we were blending towards that goal and then tweaking those to ultimately get 2020 for 2022, which we've just released. That was taking pre-existing, which was the 2020, and then tweaking it to achieve 2022. When, when you're, when you have an idea of creating a new line, or take Elegancia or, or the Generoso, um, do you go into those saying like, I want this specific outcome, I want this flavor profile, I want it to be different than what I had previously? Or do you want it to just be a new expression of a profile you've already created? Because, because I think like, like I smoke a lot of cigars. I'm able to try a lot. You have, take Connecticut's. Um, some of them really stick out, but a lot of them are just sort of simple, smooth. Not too much going on outside of just kind of creamy and light. Um, so when you approach blending Elegancia, did you have a specific profile in mind or a specific outcome, or did you want the experience to come first yeah. and the cigar to back it up? No, I knew, I knew I was going to have two styles. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to have the equivalent of Chardonnay and Cabernet in my mind okay. from a single house. So I wanted to have big bodied, creamy, buttery, toasty and smooth mm-hmm. and i wanted to have rich full earthy savory and i also knew that both of those had to um, be full and creamy in mouthfeel that was the plan mm-hmm. so playing with blends like elegancia for example was inspired starting with sterling and figuring out how to really create more bottom and and darker notes, but added to what is already the mouthfeel that I wanted to achieve initially with Elegancia. Okay. Um, but obviously, once you start tweaking it, like we added Nicaragua, it completely threw off the blend. And so, you know, then you start um, solving for this new problem. It's kind of like a, a Rubik's Cube. Like you take, you take it when it's finished mm-hmm. and then you, you mess something up and now you have to solve for it again. Right. And you probably not going to solve it exactly the same way as you solved it the first time. Um, and you know that you're going to get back to this perfect balance, but the process is going to be different. So if the finished cube is just this idea of perfect balance, not specific flavor, then you do something to disrupt it. Like one of the easiest things to do is take a blend that you love and change the wrapper. And you put a new wrapper on it and it's a completely different cigar mm-hmm. that's totally out of balance. And you can ask yourself, is, is there something, is the change, even though it's out of balance, is whatever new worth keeping? And if it is, then you solve for new balance by then tweaking the blend to take it in this new direction. Um, but if it's, completely unredeemable, mm-hmm. then 
you put the old wrapper back on and then change something else, change a filler, swap out a leaf for a different leaf and see what happens. Is it redeemable? If it's redeemable and interesting, then you start solving for the new re- for the new filler. Um, that's some of the like exploration blending that that I think is really a luxury when you don't have something to make and launch right away and you can just build up a library of options. And so I had a lot of options that I had built up, maybe that I hadn't finished finished, mm-hmm. um, but that were certainly complete enough where we could pick up and really do some good work quickly and get some some new offerings in market. You're really close to the Quesada family and that's been developed over the years. How have, Did they walk you through that process and train you on the blending side of things? Or would you more or less go to them with an idea and be like, here's kind of what we want to see? I've been how, friends how with them since since 2003. I met okay. them in 03. And the first time I went to Dominican, I believe was late 03 or 04. And then I would go down about once a year just to spend time with them and hang out and spend time in the factory. At the time, I spent a lot more time with uh, Manolo because the kids were my age and they were in school and working and doing other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But then as they got more involved in the business, I became a lot closer with the younger generation. Not that I became less close with Manolo. I became even closer, um, but became closer with the generation that I was obviously much more closely affiliated with. Um, And I wouldn't say at any point that there was a deliberate attempt to teach. Um, There was always a willingness to share. And I got to spend an extraordinary amount of time just with them and around them while they were doing what they did. And they were Mm -hmm. just kind enough to let me participate. Um, And so it wasn't, it wasn't so much. If this happens, do this. If you experience X, do Y. It was much more of just being able to follow along and experience it in real time and then be able to ask thoughtful questions and be given either a deliberate answer or and i have no idea let's go find out answer and right. you know no different than in in retail um you know i feel really fortunate that i was able to start when i was really young and i was able to be around incredibly not just incre- incredibly talented people but incredibly generous people who are willing to share it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like today there is, there tends to be less willingness to encourage other people to, um, to achieve your level of success. Like there's, there tends to be now this, I want to keep my lead position. And so you stay down here and I'll teach you a little, but I'll never teach you as much as I know, because then mm-hmm. you might jump ahead of me. And that's crazy. You know, I mean, yeah, that's too uh, common. Thank God I, I didn't have that in in the the leaders I was around and the managers I was around and the uh you know just smart people and, and uh you know older experts generations ahead of me like the Manolos and the Benjamin Mendezes and and all those folks. Um you know, it was just I was always surrounded around people who who believed in 
the more you know, the better you can be and the better you can be, the better it is for everybody. And mm -hmm. I can learn from you as much as you can learn from me. You know, that was um, that was just my my whole upbringing in this business. Uh, and so especially when you, I look at the Casadas and the Placencias, although that was a, a, a later relationship um, towards the, I guess, mid to early 2000s, the first decade of the thousands that really developed once I joined that chairman in 2011. Um, you know, the same thing, like Nestor and I are basically the same age. Mm -hmm. uh, but this guy is is just a, a wealth of knowledge in areas that I could never possibly understand, and nor would I even pretend that I will ever know what he knows. Right. And, and that's perfectly fine. And he would never pretend that he knows what I know about retail because I did that for 20 years and he's done his thing for 20 years. And so that's what's great about about trusting people and surrounding yourself with good partners is the is the is the willingness to to share and learn and listen and know that um, you'll never know as much as they do. So you can always ask them again. You know, that's yeah. that's what makes these relationships so, so valuable. I always thought it was it was cool to see in in past jobs and just growing up, whether it was teachers or managers or whatever, is when you would find a point that neither of you have the answer. And then it's like, okay, that I think that's where you see leadership kind of take the split of, of is the leader going to kind of take you on that adventure of like, let's figure this out together. Or is it you wait here, I'm just going to go figure it out. And then I'll let you know when we figure it out. And or that's, even that's worse, such a, even such worse, a divide. they let you go do it. And if you did it wrong, they hang you out to dry when they didn't have a better answer in the first place. Right. So, so when, when you have the expert on something and then someone learning, Saying like, let's go figure this out together. Yeah, it, it it's like you... jumping out of a plane in tandem, right? There's, yeah, there's there's something about we are in this together. You have to do your part and not freak out. I'm gonna do my part and rip this cord when I'm supposed to. Yep. And if we do what we're supposed to do, we're gonna be on the ground together. I hope not all business experiences experiences are like jumping out of an airplane, though. No, no, fair enough. I, I but really... let me tell you, last last couple of years, they sure have felt like it for me. That's true. I mean, you came out on the other side well. So, so I think I'm still, I'm, I haven't landed yet. We're still, but at least the, the shoot has deployed. I, I mean, at least it worked. Yeah. You haven't had to pull the emergency shoot yet. Uh, so with your Ferio Tago lines, the two new ones, I've heard you talk about this and I, and I find this interesting. Your comparison you've given is you blend them like wine. Where opposed to um, most cigars, most cigar brands, a cigar is created, and then the expectation is that blend continues, or at least the flavor profile of that blend continues. So then you have to source potentially other tobaccos, other blends, tweak the blend as you go to keep it as close as you can to that original creation. Yep. If I'm understanding this right, Elegancia and Generoso are not that. You're allowing those to change over time? We are allowing them to have a greater um, individuality by year. So, for example, if, if we're making Sterling, mm -hmm. every production we're making Sterling, we are retasting it to make sure 
that even if we have the exact same tobaccos that we had in the last production, that they have not changed over time and evolved sure. over time through aging. So there's a constant reevaluation to make sure that the flavor and experience is exactly the same as it was before. Um, with Elegancia and Generoso, we are making from scratch every production, which is done in limited annual releases. Um, and we are tasting to make sure that it is within the appropriate style, mm -hmm. but not exact. Um, and so, you know, with wine, it's slightly different because not only are you allowing the change, but that's also a direct result of the fact that everything in the bottle is the expression of that particular vintage from the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And, but the winemaker will not, winemaker does not um, follow cookie cutter instructions when they're making the wine every year. So even though it may be grown in the same vineyard, based on the weather, they might harvest earlier. They might let the fruit um, go longer. They might um, take some, remove some fruit in order to have the remaining fruit get uh, bigger. Um, so there's lots of things, individual judgment calls every year that a winemaker will make all the way and up to the time that it is bottled in order to try and make the best Chardonnay they can make or the best Cabernet they can make, given what God gave them that year. We are taking a similar approach in that we are taking the tobaccos that are available across any number of years, putting them together in a like way to the previous year, and then making the best we can that year. So hopefully every year it is our best work. Every year it tastes very familiar but without tasting like a, a replication mm -hmm. of the one you had the year before. And that's purely just to allow for some, for some fun, for some engagement, for some evolution. No. Um, you know, the, there, there is something that, that can feel somewhat um, uh, paralyzing when you take the job so seriously like we do of keeping Sterling Sterling of keeping Panamericana, Panamericana. I mean, there are, there are lots of companies that may not take it as seriously as we do and that allow for way more ebbs and flows over time. Mm -hmm. But, but I don't believe in that. I believe in, we've created an experience that you have bought into. And so now it's our job to maintain that experience in perpetuity, unless we tell you otherwise. In this case, we're allowing ourselves the ability to allow it to evolve and change. What's coming next? Do you have, do you have a, do you, I guess, do you have any PCA releases that you can talk about or, or anything coming out this year or? We just launched the TAA. Okay. Um, so a 2022 limited edition for Tobacco Association of America that just started shipping last week. Um, and we are soon to release the 2022 um Elegancia and Generoso Ferriotego flagships. So those are coming soon. Um, it's not specifically a show release, but obviously while we are at the show, it will be a, a, a very current release right. um, that will hopefully still be available. There's a couple other things that are really in the works, but just based on the, on the, you know, supply chain and 
and and constant delays. I'm I really hate um, I hate what we have become, which is just this constant culture of tease mm-hmm. and and no action. You know, like I've read more press releases and announcements of things that haven't happened over the last two and a half to three years. And it's almost like nobody cares whether it happens or not. People are just so excited about the news and then they talk about it and then they have opinions and then they scream at each other about opinions and then they're on to another press release, but no one ever holds to account what was actually in the first announcement. Right. So I no longer make announcements until I have dates once. And that usually means I have finished goods in hand and we can now tell you this is going to happen in four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. Um, but there are really cool things in the hopper. I'm excited to see what's coming out. I got to get a hold of the TAA. There's a shop in Madison. I'm in Wisconsin and I'm right between Madison and Milwaukee. There's Lake Country Cigars, which is where I'm at too often. And then there's um, there's Tasting Room, which is an awesome shop in Madison. So there I'm going to be in Tasting Room okay. uh, in two weeks. Really? Yeah, what? we're gonna do it. We're gonna do an event. Uh, I got to find the date. I don't have it right here, but I'll be there. Uh, I'm in California this week, home the next two weeks, and then the week after that, 28th okay. maybe, something like that. Okay. Is that a? Do you, know, you know if that's a weekend thing you're doing? I think it's a Thursday, Wednesday. Yeah, during the week. I will. I will try to be at that. Tasting room of Monona. We'll be there. Yeah, that's a that's a great shop. Have you been there? Great shop. Yeah. In yep. fact, one of my last events for Matt Sherman International on the road was in their store. Yeah, and I don't know I'm if you've been in the back. old store, but I, you the know, new I build was the old store, but I've been such in the new a store. such a good move. And then I, I believe yeah. they have plans to make a a monster store on the other side of the city. So that'll be cool to see. Um, they're a great partner, very supportive of Ferio Tego, and I know mm-hmm. they got their their TAA limiteds in. So make sure you support them. I'll do that. Um, something we like to focus on in the magazine is is a part of the stories are well, all the stories we tell and the people we involve ourselves with are are people that we see pursuing the American dream and and, and pursuing success. Um, and like you gave a good example of like you're jumping out of the airplane together with your business partner or, or your customers, like whatever that is, you're, you're going on the, on this adventure together, trying to deliver. Um, that being said with your story and with your goals, how would you define the, how would you define success or, or failure? Um, what, when you're working on a project, where's that line of like this worked, this was success for my career, for the business or for this product. Or we need to go back to the drawing board. And... I think um, I don't think it's always been the case, but I, I, it feels more the case now um, that success and failure have somehow adopted finality to them. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think that's true. Like no. uh, if you've achieved something that you believe is successful, your work is done. And if you've experience something that would be considered failure, uh, you're toast and it's over and you can't recover from that. I mean, if that were the case, the United States of America wouldn't even be a country. Right. You know, I mean, the, the, 
the ebbs and flows of successes and failures are what make long-term achievement and progress possible. Uh, so to me, what success and failure have in common is, um, is the idea of chance and risk and motivation. And if you assess the risk and you're motivated to try anyway and do your absolute best, then for sure there will either be a successful outcome or a less successful outcome that could be considered a failure. But both of those things should result in subsequent motivation, mm -hmm. subsequent risk assessment, and continued movement forward. And even failures, to me, that's not a step backward. A failure is, is a move forward because in both of those cases, you've learned something that you didn't know before. And so you're, you're still closer to an answer. You're still closer Absolutely. to evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, th that is certainly um, something that we hold very strong within, within our philosophy at Ferriotego. Uh, I think personally and for our, for our company that, that, you know, even look, think, think the, the formation of Ferriotego is the result of presumed failure to sell. Um, and then we instead successfully acquired and now we're moving forward in a different direction that was not plan A, but it was only because of, of a theoretical failure mm -hmm. that we've been able to succeed. Yeah, I mean, failure, failure is often like that can be reframed as opening up a new opportunity or just, I mean, the, the classic Edison analogy yeah, same, or the story. Same with, of him. same with defeat. I mean, you know, there are lots of examples where a team is defeated only to go on to win a championship mm -hmm. you know it's things are not things are only over when you decide that you are done right um and i think the that is the american dream is if you aren't done then you can keep going and you can keep developing and you can find new ways of doing things differently to compete and create success for you, for your family, for your customers, for your business partners. I mean, that, that is the, the, the bedrock of what the American dream is. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's something that I think is uniquely, just say it's uniquely American. And it's like, especially you see, I saw it, like, I've, I've never been to New York City. It's a place I need to get to. But Footage of what New York was doing at the height of COVID. Bro. People looked at that as, I mean, it's a tragedy. But people are looking at it like, okay, New York's failing. They're, it's shutting down in every way. But watching people just continue to work and continue to drive and continue to move forward is super cool. At, and, especially and also, in a city like that. Time, not the first time New York has done it. No. No, they're, I mean, they're getting too much practice. Well, but again, is it, if you look at some of the most horrific experiences of our generation, we can now say that we experienced two to go from 9-11 and, and 20 years later to COVID. Um, you know, those are, 
those are two absolutely devastating city disrupting uh, uh you know re rebuilding of the entire metropolis right and we did it in 2011 uh, 2001 excuse me with 911 which was obviously a horrible experience and here we are in 2022 differently doing the same thing and, we, and yeah. it takes thinking different and how do you get out of it and look at what problems you need to solve for prioritize and and get out of it it's uh you know it's but that that too is american you yeah. know it's no, it's no different than than you look at a at a, a farmer in the midwest who had a bad crop and lost all of the apples on his orchard mm -hmm. what do you do you know do you, do you just quit and apply for jobs you can't you figure out what to do with what you got and then you figure out how to make your orchard better so it doesn't happen again that's that is it, it i think it is i think it is as uniquely american as anything that is uniquely american can be right I, we were at a winery my wife went out in colorado and I, and from my understanding it was a apple orchard beforehand and we were talking to the the guy that was giving us the tour and I was like, how'd you get into wine? He's like, growing apples. And we're like, what, what does that mean? He's like, realize it sucked at growing apples. <laughs> Figured out how not to do it. Their plants got diseased. Everything died. And he's like, we can't do that. You could throw in the towel and be like, okay, I failed at this orchard. Or just start a new one. Find a new way to do it. Figure out what are the strengths that you have in front of you. What are the strengths that his that his land had, that his crops have, figure out what you can grow, and then just run after that. You bet. And, so now, and it's super cool what they're doing. And, and, and that's, the, that's the continual story in these industries that I'm seeing is run into a wall. It's, okay, reassess, move forward. Might be in a completely new direction, but that doesn't mean it's a failure. It just means you're realigning values. And that doesn't have to be forward. with owners. It's super cool to watch. I mean, yeah, that's the same with if you had a if you had a job pre-COVID and lost your job and now it's yep. post-COVID and you're looking for new work. You know, I the majority of people I know are not going back looking for the exact same job they had before. They're taking every transferable skill that they learned in job A and are now applying it to discipline B that they mm -hmm. happen to like better and realize that they are equally qualified to be able to do it based on what they learned in their previous previous roles and experiences and that too that's not defeat that's moving forward that's evolution that's trying something new and and doing it and applying it and if it doesn't work who cares then you yep. try something else yep that's that's the that's the core of the american dream that's the the core of hard work um and i I'm, i know we called the american dream but i don't think that's necessarily a innately american thing to have that drive because uh, you see that I hope everywhere. It's a, I but hope it's, it's a human thing. Right. But it's something that maybe we give we give ourselves as a community pressure and accountability to get off get off your ass and keep moving. And tragedy hits, failure. Well, the other thing is what's available. So if yeah. you you know, if we look at what we can do versus what they can do in Cuba. Mm-hmm. You could be just as driven in Cuba 
But in Cuba, you can't open your own business. You right. can't go buy XYZ and try it. You know, there are just things you you literally and legally, if you can call it legal, can't do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are certainly things that are awfully special about America. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, a, a radically imperfect country, but you take it all and add it together. It is pretty uniquely American. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's encouraging. Um, so what, what's next for you or what, what do you have any big goals that you're, you're reaching for outside of just the next blend you're working on? And you talked about not having a retail shop yet. Is that something you're, you're hoping to do or what's, I guess, what's on your horizon? I've, I've spent my whole life dreaming about a million different things. Um, so I've, I've, I've never ruled anything out, which is how I ended up in the cigar business pursuing music uh you know, i'm a big believer in not ruling things out right i'm also a big believer in you try and set your goals though specifically you set them equally thematically and um so there are specific goals that i see that would equal success for me but frankly the thematic goals for me are really uh the ones that i'm focused most on which is how do we continue to um, drive awareness of our brand and awareness of our story? How do we continue to over deliver on experience, um, to grow our distribution, and frankly, to, to continue to earn and preserve the trust of consumers and retailers to stick with us and to brag about us. That's a good goal. Yeah, a little wide, but... I don't think so. I don't think in your industry. I mean... That's the goal. Very cool. So you'll be at PCA. We'll be there. We'll be camping out at uh, Room 101's booth, which I think is actually right next to yours. Yeah, it's super close to mine. Um, I'm excited. I haven't been to a trade show yet. Oh, it's, it's a game changer. It'll be... A, It'll be a busy weekend, though. Yep, absolutely. Um, if you if you if you leave feeling rested, you didn't do it right. I always say but, that the, the the last day of the trade show looks like the opening scene of Thriller, of just skeletons walking around, you know, yeah. shadows of their former selves when they got there four days ago. Um, but it's a tremendous experience to meet everybody. Mm-hmm. And especially now, what you're talking about is a room filled with people who want to be there, who have prioritized right. this show as something that's important to them and important to their business, and they're not going to miss it. And that's those are people I want to be surrounded by. Right. That's awesome. I'm excited to see you there. I'm excited to go to that. And then hopefully in, in a couple of weeks, I'll see you in Madison. It's going to be great. I'll see you there before Vegas. But Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks people, for having where me. Where can people find you? Uh, personally, everything at Michael Herklotz. And for the company, everything at Ferriotego, except for Twitter, which is Ferriotego Cigars. Very cool. Well, we will we will do what we can to spread the word about your brand and what you're doing. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm grateful. Very cool. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ATF Podcast. If you have not yet subscribed to ATF Magazine, 
Go to atflifestyle.com slash subscribe to subscribe today.